So we are doing a series called Defenders of the Faith. It sounds like a Marvel movie, doesn't it? And it's part, today is part one of our two-part series on apologetics. What is apologetics, you may ask? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not um, apologizing for being a Christian. <laughs> I'm so sorry I'm a Christian. I'm so sorry. I just want to tell you something really sad. I'm a Christian. I have to tell you this. I'm a believer. No, it's not that. Apologetics, the Greek word apologia, if that's how you say it, means to give a defense. Now, apologetics is not a new thing. Christianity is steeped in apologetic tradition. C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia series, he was a great apologist. He wrote many books defending the faith, like Mere Christianity, The Abolition of Man, amongst others, as well as the Narnia series. Tolkien, who wrote The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings series, he was a great apologist. It's been going for a long time. And the Alpha Course, who's done the Alpha Course ever? That's a form of apologetics. Because this word, apologia, appears 19 times in the New Testament. And in Acts 22, verse 1, that's one example of the 19, Paul says, listen now to my apologia, my defense. So he's defending the gospel, he's explaining the gospel. So apologetics is a defense of Christianity. And you and I are defenders of the faith. So I want you to tell the person next to you, I'm a defender of the faith. Tell the person on the other side right now, I'm a defender of the faith. That's right. So what, what apologetics does, and we've just done two courses of it in C3 College, which was fun, but apologetics is an attempt to remove obstacles to believing. So some people have these obstacles in their thoughts, these presuppositions, these things in their mind. They're like obstacles to believing the truth of the gospel. So we need to be there to listen to people so we can help talk with them and answer the questions and doubts that unbelievers have because their questions are important. And we need to listen to what they're saying. We also need to listen to what they're not saying and be led by the Spirit. My granddad was a Christian I trusted and when I was a lost teenager, I would bring my questions, my God questions that were too hard for me, to him. And he would listen and we would talk and he would explain and he helped steer me in the right direction so I could get saved. We need people to help other people get over their obstacles and get to know Jesus. So the Lord wants to use us, the Holy Spirit wants to use us to help people Remove the obstacles in their minds so they can come to know the Lord. Now, here is the number one apologetic scripture. Here we go. First scripture. First Peter 3, 15b. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So apologetics helps blind, spiritually blind people to see. And it's important that you and I are willing and ready to do this every day because people are heading towards a lost eternity without Jesus. And when we do it, we have an attitude of respect and gentleness, like the scripture said, because we're trying to win a person to the Lord. We're not trying to win an argument, are we? Because you can win an argument but lose a soul. And Proverbs, here's another scripture on the screen, Proverbs 11.30 says, He who wins souls is wise. She who wins souls is wise. We're trying to win souls. So we don't go out and pick fights with unbelievers and try and display our vast superior knowledge 
of the Bible and apologetics. No, that's not what we're doing. We always communicate the gospel with love and humility because we are Jesus' representatives. We are his ambassadors. Now, it is good to know that there is much evidence for Christianity, the Bible, and the resurrection. So we as Christians are not dumb. We don't just have blind faith. We serve a God who is highly intelligent. He's omniscient, all-knowing. He's omnipresent everywhere. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. And he makes sense of it all. So today we're just going to scratch the surface. We're not going to get to do much because we've only got 30 minutes. And Alan's going to bring part two next Sunday. So today this is apologetics light, diet apologetics. We're going to look at four areas. So stay with me. We're going somewhere. You might want to take notes. Are you ready? All the defenders of the faith said, good. Point number one, the Bible. The Bible. People need to know that the Bible is accurate and reliable Because if the Bible can be discredited, then Christianity can also be discredited. So God has written a book to show mankind, humankind, what he is like. And this book is the Bible. In Latin, Bible is Biblia. It just means book. Now, we know there are 66 books that make up the Bible. So the Bible is a book full of little books. And it's written by 40 different authors over the space of 1,600 years on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. The Bible is the most widely read book in the world. It is the most stolen book in the world. It is the most smuggled book in the world. The Bible is and always has been the highest best-selling book in the world. They don't even put it on the top 10 selling list because it always is the highest selling book all over the world. It is the book of books. The Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book. There is no book that reaches or even begins to compare with the circulation of the scriptures. And the Bible has influenced more the world more than any other book. It is totally unique as it has one author, God, who has inspired the 40 guys who wrote it down. So I'm going to give you some more scriptures and some more quotes. 2 Timothy 3 verse 6, all scripture is God-breathed. That means inspired by God. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, since God is true and cannot lie, we know the Bible is true. Chuck Missler would always say he went to be with the Lord um, a couple of years ago. But he was living in New Zealand for some time, and he's a great author and Bible teacher. He said there are 66 books by 40 different authors, yet we now discover it is an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Freaky. So God has preserved his word, the Bible, perfectly over the centuries. And if you or I were to read it, if we could, in the original Greek and Hebrew, and then read it alongside our modern trans- English translation, you'd find the meaning to be the same. I used to work with a guy at BC who read the Bible in the New Testament in the original Greek, and he verified that for me personally. The Bible is also unique in its survival. You know, the monks used to copy by hand manuscripts. A manuscript is copied by hand. That's what it means. And they would painstakingly copy the Bible out. It was their life's calling up there in those monasteries, uh, mostly on papyrus, which was made from the papyrus reed, and they beat it out and make a type of paper. But papyrus does perish over time. Some papyrus manuscripts have lasted from 
2,500 BC. However, they are kept in very dry areas, like, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which we had the privilege of viewing when we were there in Israel, which was amazing. So here's a couple of quotes. Josh McDowell, who wrote the great work, um, Evidence Demands a Verdict. He's an American author and evangelist. He said, the Bible compared with other ancient writings, has more manuscript evidence than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. Bernard Ram, who's an American theologian and apologist, he said, Jews preserved the biblical manuscripts as no other manuscripts have ever been preserved. They had special classes of men within their culture whose sole duty was to preserve and transmit these documents with perfect, practically perfect fidelity. They were called scribes and lawyers. They would even count the letters and the syllables and the words. Whoever counted the letters and syllables and words of Plato or Aristotle or Cicero. So we see there that God has preserved the integrity of his word. So we had Jewish scribes and lawyers. We had Christian monks. They're all copying these manuscripts by hand until the printing press was invented. And they all breathed a big sigh of relief because they were getting RSI. And um, by Gutenberg in Germany in 1440, and by the mid-1450s, it was being used widely. And they would print Bibles. Hallelujah. It was just in time for the Reformation led by Luther. Did you know that the New Testament is one of the most reliable documents that we have from antiquity? That is because many of the authors of various parts of the New Testament, Matthew, John, Peter, they were eyewitnesses. They saw it with their own eyes and wrote it down straight away. And they were, or they were also interviewing eyewitnesses like Dr. Luke did. And he wrote Luke and Acts. So the authors cared about truth. And then you had intellectuals like Luke, the doctor, the original fact checker. So they were taking pains to get it accurate. You know, the closer the document was written to the time when the events occurred makes it more reliable and accurate. Just like reading the news at night or watching it on TV, it's just happened. Whereas if you'd... If you wrote it years later, you're trying to remember, it's, it's less accurate. Now, there are over 5,000 manuscript copies in Greek of the New Testament. This is compared to Plato's seven copies, and they were made 900 years later, after he spoke them. So we can see how the Bible was written down by many different people, and they were cross-checking all the facts with each other, so it is a highly accurate text. The Bible has also survived through persecution. It has withstood the vicious attacks of its enemies, as no other book ever has. Many people have tried to burn it, ban it, and outlaw it. From the days of the Roman em- emperors right through till present day, communist-dominated and other extremist nations. The Bible is also a very reliable historical text. There are secular historians who also write of Jesus. Josephus is one well-known one. And those historians' records back up exactly what the gospel writers wrote. They don't contradict them at all. Here's a wee story. You may have heard this story before, and you may have heard of the famous French atheist Voltaire from the 18th century, and he was very vocal about his hatred for Christianity. He predicted that Christianity would be extinct within 100 years of his life. This is what he said. A hundred years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker, which means basically in the museum. 
However, in an ironic twist, within only 50 years of his death, his very house, which he had owned and lived in, became a Bible society headquarters, printing Bibles on Voltaire's own printing press and distributing them across Europe. I love God's sense of humor. God has been faithful to preserve his word. So number one was the Bible. Number two, the prophecies in the Bible. The Bible proves itself to be true by the many prophecies in it that have been fulfilled. Many New Testament writers referred to Old Testament prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus' life. And the New Testament's full of these references to as it was written, as it was fulfilled in the Scriptures. In Acts alone, there are four of them. So here's an example. Acts 13.29 says, When they had done all that the prophecies said about him, him being Jesus. They took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. So these New Testament writers were noting how the Bible was being fulfilled with its own predictions and prophecies. We also know in the Old Testament, there are 322 prophecies, clear prophecies of Jesus, things about his birth, details about his life, and even his death. These were given hundreds of years before Jesus was born, through many different prophets. And every one of them was fulfilled. Incredible details. For example, here's one in Micah 5, verse 2. It prophesies that the rule of the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. And that was written over 400 years before Jesus was born. How do you try and fulfill all these yourself? You can't fulfill what town you're going to be born in, especially when it's not the town your parents lived in. Another prophecy was the amount of money that was the price of Jesus' betrayal. Zechariah 11 verse 13 prophesies this, 30 pieces of silver, very specific. And we see this fulfilled. And it records it in the Gospel of Matthew 26, 15, when Judas paid the priest that exact amount, 30 silver coins, which interestingly was also the price of a slave. Now, do you know what the mathematical probability of all these 322 prophecies is being fulfilled in one person's life is? What's the probability of that? It's one over 84 with a hundred zeros after it. It's totally impossible. Yet they were all fulfilled in Jesus' one life. This is totally supernatural and shows Jesus' divinity. Number three, we've had number one, the Bible. Number two, the prophecies in the Bible. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the resurrection is the central claim of Christianity. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 17 says, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So everything hangs on the resurrection. Here's a quote from Tim Keller, American pastor, theologian, and apologist. He said, the whole issue is whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. So if there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. So let's look at the facts briefly, shall we? Number one, fact one, after Jesus' death, he was buried in a tomb, which was owned by Joseph of Arimathea. Fact two, the tomb was empty. This was seen and witnessed by Peter, John, Mary, the other Mary, and Salome. Fact three, the resurrected Jesus appeared to many people and was seen by many different people in different places and at different times over a 40-day period. Peter, the disciples, the women, and over 500 believers, it says in 1 Corinthians 15. Fact four, the change in the disciples was remarkable. 
It sh- they showed incredible boldness. They went from hiding in fear behind locked doors to preaching the gospel at risk of their own lives. Now, usually after a leader who led an uprising was killed, the followers would disperse in fear of also being killed themselves. This is only logical. Yet, all of Jesus' disciples went from cowardice to fearlessness, and all of the the apostles, except for John, later on gave their lives and were even killed and martyred for the Lord. Even Jesus, two of his brothers whom we know of, James and Jude, had a change of heart and became believers after the resurrection from the dead at some point because they wrote epistles in the New Testament. Also, the number of disciples exploded. Now, let's just say for argument's sake, shall we, that If the disciples are wanting to make up an elaborate story of Jesus rising from the dead, how did they move the huge stone when it was sealed and had squads of Roman soldiers guarding it? And why did they not produce Jesus' body as evidence that he was still dead? And why, oh why, would you use the testimony of women to say they had seen the risen Christ, Mary and Mary? Because Josephus at the time, the historian, records that the testimony of a woman in that place in that time was worthless and could never hold up in a court of law. It wouldn't even be used in a court of law because women had such a low status they were seen as chattels, things to be owned back then in that time. So if they were making up a story, they wouldn't have used the testimony of the women. They would have produced the body. And we don't know how the heck they would have moved the stone. But we know the truth, which is, in recorded, which is recorded in the Bible, that an angel moved the stone. The resurrection was a supernatural miracle of God, and it proves that Jesus is who he said he is, the Son of God, and he has power over death. The bodily resurrection of Jesus authenticated everything he did and everything he said. I don't know if you've heard of J. John. Anyone heard of J. John? Anglican canon, hilarious, great evangelist and a preacher. Someone asked him, I heard this this week, someone asked him, why are you a Christian? And he answered, because Christianity is true, because Christianity works, and because we're all broken and only Jesus can fix us. And he went on to tell of three authors who tried to disprove the resurrection. In the 18th century in London lived a man named Gilbert West. He was so annoyed that so many of his friends were becoming Christians. So he decided to write a book to disprove the resurrection. And halfway through writing his book, he met Jesus. So he wrote his book the other way around. And he called it Observations on the History and Evidences of the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. About 100 years later, in the 19th century in America, there lived a famous atheist named Robert Ingersoll. His nickname was the Great Agnostic. He didn't like it that so many people were becoming Christians. So he talked his mate, the famous General Lew Wallace, into slandering Christianity by writing a book to disprove the resurrection. But halfway through writing his book, General Lew met Jesus. So he wrote his book the other way around too. And he called his book Ben-Hur. And in the 20th century, a lawyer and a journalist named Frank Morrison tried to attack Christianity. So he decided to write a book to disprove the resurrection. But halfway through writing his book, he met Jesus. So he wrote his book the other way around and called it Who Moved the Stone? 
So if you want to become a Christian and encounter Jesus, why not try writing a book to disprove the resurrection? <laughs> Last point, number four. Point number four, the creation. God has revealed himself in his creation. We call it nature. And this is not a, um, I don't have time to try and do a creation versus evolution message, although I very much like to, because it's such a deception in these days. And it irks me greatly that it's taught in schools as fact when it's only ever been a theory and never been proven. There is evidence of design and creation. Therefore, it must have had a designer. Romans 1 verse 19 and 20. It says, they know that, meaning people, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. So we can see the reality of God and all the things he has made. Now, logic dictates that if a thing is created, it must have a creator. I've been told that if you look in a microscope, through a microscope at a wee blob of concrete, you just see a little mess of atoms and molecules everywhere because it's man-made. However, if we put a wee blade of grass or anything that God has made from his creation under a microscope, we will notice three things with those atoms and molecules. We will notice it has beauty, order and form because it is God made. And when God makes things, we see patterns in all of his creation. He does all things well. I used to show my kids when we were out walking in the bush, you know, those pungas. And um, they're so amazing because each punga frond is like a big one. And then you go down, you pull a leaf off and then it's exactly the same, but smaller. And then you pull one of those leaves off and it's exactly the same, but smaller. Who's done that in the bush? You've seen, you know what I'm talking about. Next time, go and get a punga and look at it. And each one is like a macrocosm of the microcosm. It's like, go smaller, smaller, smaller. It's amazing. He is incredible. The Lord has made everything so perfectly. There is evidence of fine-tuning of the earth and its positioning. If we were any closer to the sun, we'd burn up. If we were any further away from it, we'd freeze. And if there were not a perfect balance of gases and the placing of the planets and gravity and other elements in the, in the world, we would not survive here. He has made it so perfectly. You may have heard this famous analogy, but I'll share it. In 1993, British astronomer Fred Hoyle wrote in his book called The Intelligent Universe. He wrote, refuting evolution and presenting case for creation to show the ridiculousness of the evolutionary claim that the universe came from nothing. He used this famous analogy. A junkyard contains all the bits and pieces of a Boeing 747, dismembered and in disarray. A whirlwind happens to blow through the junkyard. What is a chance that after a while we see a fully assembled 747 ready to fly and it will be found standing there? So small as to be negligible. So he is saying it is an insane notion that something came from nothing. That is true. So let's bring it home now if the band could come and join me. We're going to pray for some people in a moment. How do you and I become defenders of the faith? We need to get our bold on. 
We need to get our big girl, big boy pants on and start talking to people about Jesus at work, at school. Because we are the defenders of the faith and we don't need to be ashamed of it because this is a gospel that makes sense. God does all things well. We don't need to be shy about it. Christianity is true and Christianity works. And it's worked for me for over 35 years. Every person is broken and only Jesus can fix us because we're all sinners and only he made a way to pay for our sin when he shed his blood in our place on the cross. People all need Jesus and we have him. If we had the answer, the healing, the cure for cancer, what would we be like if we didn't share that with cancer sufferers? We'd be selfish and arrogant and bad. But we have the answer for humanity. For the broken humanity, we've got to share him. We've got to speak out about him. People all need Jesus and we are holding him in our hearts. We've got to not keep him for ourselves. We've got to share him with others. And as we begin to take a step of faith and speak out about him, the fear of man is smashed off our lives. It's broken off us. Do you know one day each person is going to stand before the Lord and give an account for their lives? Are you and I ready for that day? Are you in right standing with God? Only knowing Jesus can put us in right standing with God. Have you made Jesus the boss of your life? Are you living for him? Here's another quote from C.S. Lewis. He is speaking about Jesus. He said, either this man, Jesus, was and is the son of God or else a madman. Or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So C.S. Lewis argued that Jesus was either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. And he did not find evidence for the first two. So he concluded that he must be the last one, Lord, the Son of God. Each person must come to their own conclusion on who Jesus is. But they need to hear about Jesus in order to make that decision. The best apologetics we can ever present to others is not a list of little facts, but it's our own changed life. It's our own love for Jesus. Let's stand this morning. Are you ready tomorrow morning at work, at school, to be a defender of the faith? We've got time and I want to pray for people who need a, just, a, a, just an evangelistic burst from the Holy Ghost. You know, if you're not baptised in the Holy Spirit, He's the one who makes us bold. And last week, after Pastor Nick preached, if you weren't here, listen to the podcast. It was amazing. He preached about the Holy Spirit. And there were people down here getting healed and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And if you thought, man, I should have gone up last week, or maybe you were on holiday and you weren't here last week, come on down and get filled with the power of the Holy Spirit because He's the one who won't be shut up. He's the one who speaks out through our mouths. He's the one who's bold. If you need a breakthrough in evangelism, you've wanted to share about Jesus, but you've been a bit shy, a bit fearful, come on down and you need to get the power of the Holy Ghost on you. We've got to share this good news with others now while we can. Are you up for it? Are you ready to be a defender of the faith? In Jesus' name, amen. 
Let's lift our hands. Father, right now I pray you would impart your boldness to us, your anointing upon us to boldly share your gospel. Set up divine appointments this week for us in, at work, at school, in cafes, on the building site, wherever we are, to boldly share about you. You are not a secret to be kept. We have no reason for shame in the name of Jesus. We break the power of the enemy and fear of man. We pray the boldness of the Holy Spirit upon each one in Jesus' name.